exploring and looking at this story of Daniel and his three friends and how they lived as unique witnesses to the kingdom of God in the, the place of Babylon, in a culture that did not look like God, did not sort of hold to the values of God, how God used Daniel. We're going to read this incredible story of how God used Daniel to change the hearts of people who were leading culture. And so this whole series, right, Thriving in Babylon, has been uh, a bit of a case study for us to look at Daniel and his friends in his day, in his way, of how God used them. And to ask the questions of looking at this story, how might God want to use us in our day, in our ways, to change the hearts of those who lead culture around us? Daniel was living in a foreign land. He was living in a place that was... was um, not just not following God, but was actually antagonistic to the ways of God. And I think there are some, some elements that our culture is the same. That the, the world that we live in is, is not only just not sort of holding to the values that sort of Jesus has held out to us, but is actually antagonistic to the values of Jesus and his kingdom. And so if we believe as a church, as a people of God across uh, the world, that God is going to use his people to be kind of a remedy, to be almost like antibodies that are kind of injected into this world to bring healing, to bring restoration, that God wants people to, be, to become alive and to be healed and set free and redeemed. If God's going to use us to do that, then it's a good thing, I think, for us to just take a look at the world around us and say, okay, what are the things around us that are pushing us further from Christ? And what are the things that we're called to sort of, not just to stand against, but to sort of, to, to work against, to speak against with the love of Christ? Some of you, maybe you've been to the doctor recently, um, you know, you've got an illness, you've got something that is plaguing your body, something, you've got some symptoms of something going on, so you go to the doctor so that you can get a diagnosis and with that diagnosis, now that you know what's wrong, hopefully there's some treatment that's prescribed, right? I mean, there, there's, there's the diagnosis is important so that you know how to treat this thing that's the problem. And so if we were going to diagnose the sickness of our culture, the secular world, what, what would we say? Like, what would we point to and say, like, we actually think this is kind of the root, not just the symptom, but what's the root? What's the cause of it? And so as we, as we dive into this, uh, chapter 6, I want us to just take a few minutes at the front end to just say, okay, thinking of our world here in our day, I think these are three things that I would say would diagnose our, our culture is, is sick, the cause of some of our cultural sickness. And, and the first one is this. Um, self is king. Self is king. How many of you have one of these in your pocket? <clears throat> right? Um, and unless you're an Android user, if you are... Uh, you know, an Apple user, these are called iPhones, and they are brilliant pieces of technology. And they help us put us at the center of the universe. You can, through technology, create a universe that revolves around you, that orbits around you and your wishes and your designs. Do you remember the day when you had to sit in a living room with other people and watch the same things on the TV as everybody else and as everybody else across the country was watching because you had the one channel that you could see and you were sort of at the will of whoever the broadcasters were who were, this is what's on ABC tonight. Well, we used to watch TGIF uh, 
as a kid, like this is my Friday nights so watching TGIF and like you had to watch the commercials or you had to like in the commercial break, you had to like stop and like run to the bathroom and run to the fridge and get your snack and try to be back by the time the commercial was over. So you wouldn't miss any of your favorite show. Um, do you feel the pain? Have you, you guys remember a time like this? Now you don't have to do that. You get to dictate what you watch, when you watch it. You get to stream and sort of binge watch. You don't have to watch commercials. You don't have to watch any show. You don't have to watch because your preferences drive your world. It orbits around you. You don't have to listen to music you don't want to listen to. It's all your preferences. And so self is king. We live, there, there's a fantastic documentary on, on YouTube that you can watch. It's called The Century of Self. It's, it's, it's remarkable and, and really kind of troubling. Um, but this is the age in which we live. Um, it's an age of self-expression. In fact, our, our, our tools, our technology, it, it helps us express ourselves. Like our, our ideas are so great, we, we just need to express them to the world. Um, a, a world where we talk a lot about self-actualization. If I, if I could just sort of drill down and figure out who I really am, then I would be happy and just figure that out and ex, uh, experience self-actualization. We live in a world of selfies, right, where our cameras are pointed toward us, not toward this big, beautiful world filled with amazing, beautiful people. They're mostly pointed toward ourselves. Now, this is nothing new, right? This, this is the age in which we live, and technology helps us do this. But this is as old as Genesis 3, isn't it? That we want to be like God. We want to be gods of our own world. I think the, the difference is we live in an age when, um, when God has sort of, in, in sort of popular culture, God has been taken out of the equation, that we, we live in a world that says, no, 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 like there really isn't any transcendent being. There is no God. And so um, we're going to sort of remove God from the equation. And what rises into that place of what we worship? We do. Do you, do you, do you feel this? Does this kind of make sense in the world in which you live? Like this is maybe maybe as you have conversations with people around you who, who aren't Christians, who, who, who are just sort of have thoroughly bought into a secular worldview. This is... Um, this is the world in which we live. And, and it, it's, it's a, a fundamental kind of affront to this whole thing of self as king is Christianity. Because what's the essence of the Christian faith? It's saying we surrender ourselves to Jesus. Like it's self-surrender. Um, and that is where freedom is found. So this is, this is one of the, 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 the places where we would diagnose our culture. The second one is this. Um, we might, uh, might say it's an ethical breakdown. Ethical confusion. And it, it comes directly from the first one, right? If, if self is king, if self is God, we worship sort of self, then we get to decide what's good and bad. We get to decide what's right and wrong. And if I get to decide it because I am king of my own life, you get to decide for your life. There is no bigger truth, you know, that we all sort of say, no, this is right, this is wrong, and we submit ourselves to that. It creates all kinds of confusion, because, because what's right for you is good, that's right for you. What's right for me is good, and that's right for me. But um, we have no sort of like foundation, no moral, ethical foundation upon which we build our lives. And it creates all kinds of confusion. Our culture is, is one of the huge symptoms in our culture is you just see this ethical confusion all over the place. And C.S. Lewis, if you want a great read, C.S. Lewis talks about this in Abolition of Man. It's a little book, quick read. It's actually a series of a few lectures back in the 1950s. 
And in Abolition of Man, he says this. He says, when you take out of the equation this ethical truth that comes to us from God, from, from elsewhere, and we surrender to, to God's truth, when you take that out of the equation, the only other thing you have left to decide what's right and what's wrong is whether we want it or not. Well, how do I know if this thing is right? Well, do I want it? And if I want it badly enough, it must be right. But if I don't want it, then it's wrong. And this, this is a cause of all kinds of pain in our world. C.S. Lewis, he says, when we step out of this place of the foundation of, of sort of God's will for our life, it's like we, we step, we think we're stepping into freedom, but we're actually sort of like, we're stepping into nothingness. There's, there's nothing that we stand on. Um, and so uh, we, we feel this. We feel this in, in the world around us. The only sin our culture recognizes the only sin our culture recognizes is the sin of telling somebody else that what they want is wrong. Right? I mean, if you want, if you want to, to feel the ire of secular culture, just, just sort of say, you know what, this, this behavior, this activity, it, it, it's actually wrong. It's just fundamentally wrong. Who are you to tell me what's right and what's wrong? Um, so tolerance in this world has become the highest virtue, the thing that is above everything else. Um, and so it, it leads to all of this ethical confusion. And then the third one is immediacy. So we've got self as king, uh, ethical breakdown that comes from that, and then immediacy. If self is king, we want what we want, and we want it now, right? We want, like, the microwave isn't good enough. Like, you find yourself ever getting frustrated that the microwave is taking so long to do its job. What do you mean? It's going to take six minutes to thaw out this hamburger. Like, are you kidding me? Um, maybe that's just me. I've uh, got some problems. Do you remember, do you remember when the internet first came into your home, right? If you're, if you're like, you know, around the age of 30, you may have a memory of this, a 30 or, or later. And, and you remember when you had to plug the internet into the phone line, and then you, you clicked, you know, the link to dial up and you got that sound. Just, just stop for a minute and remember that sound of the internet. And this was, this was so amazing, right? The sound of dial-up internet. You can Google it, kids, if you've never heard this before. It's, it will send chills down your spine, right? Just, what is that? But that, that was the sound of, of, of the world coming to our, our living rooms and our computers. But now we've gotten so used to just instant, instant information that this has become the bane of our existence. You get, you get that and it's just like, what is happening? We need new internet. We're calling Cox. We're, you know, we're upgrading <clears throat> because we want it now. We want it now. Immediacy. I want to be healthy and I want it now. Can I just take a pill? Can I just take some other substance? I don't really want to do, I don't want to like exercise. I don't want to do the hard work of like eating healthy over a long period of time. I just, I want it right now and I don't have the patience to do anything else. I, uh, we don't read books. Um, <clears throat> the statistics would say that the, the majority of, <clears throat> of Americans who graduate from high school will never read another book cover to cover in their lives. So we don't read books. Um, we, we will tend to, we want information in short little snippets. We want you to read the book and then you just tell us what it says in like short little bullet points. Like the practice of just like sitting, sitting and, and reading is, is kind of a lost art because it's, it's too slow. It's too slow. But here's the thing. Here's discipleship. And here's how Eugene Peterson defines discipleship. A long obedience in the same direction. 
Does that sound like fun? There, there are no shortcuts to it. To following Jesus, to developing a life that's formed in the way of Jesus, it is not quick, it is not immediate, it is a long obedience in the same direction. And so if you and I are going to stay faithful to God, if we are going to live in this world in a way that stands out, in a way that people look at and say, wait a second, that is different. And there is some freedom that you have that I don't have, that I don't know about, I've never experienced that. We're actually going to have to stand against some of these things. So we're going to have to sort of stand together and recognize that the way of Jesus is different. It's different. We're not against people. We are trying to bring people to freedom. And so let's take a look at Daniel chapter 6. And, uh, and I'm just going to pull up a chair. We're going to read this together. We're going to stop along the way and make some observations as we figure out how Daniel lived this out and what it might mean for us. Daniel chapter, chapter 6. Now it pleased Darius, Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. Now these satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Verse 3, now Daniel so distinguished himself, there's something unique about him, so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, verse 4, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds um, for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Let's just pause right there. Can you imagine a world in which there was a politician who was neither corrupt nor negligent? Like there was no corruption. There was no deceit. There were no skeletons in the closet at all. Daniel is like the head of Darius's new kingdom, and, and he's, he's just as squeaky clean as can be. And not only is he squeaky clean, he's like, he's really good at his job. Like, he has these exceptional qualities that have made him sort of stand out. And Darius, this king, is just taken over the kingdom, sees him, and, and says, I want to set you in, like, first command. But the others, who are now under Daniel's command, they don't like it very much. Do you ever, like, go out to dinner with a friend, and this person is so healthy, it kind of makes you nauseous? Like, do you have friends like this? Like, you're at a restaurant, and, like, you really wanted the nacho cheese fries, or chili cheese fries, and they got the kale chips, and you feel like, I... I don't know that there actually is a restaurant that serves both chili cheese fries and kale chips, but imagine, right? Um, this is the kind of person, you know, gets up at 5 a.m. every morning, never misses a morning to go for, you know, do some exercise. One of those people, they don't eat chocolate. They smell chocolate, like just to, that's how they get their, get their sweet smell. Um, and we don't like people like that, do we? <laughs> And the reason we don't is because all of a sudden, like when we're in the presence of somebody who has made these kinds of decisions for their lives, it all of a sudden reveals my bad habits. It reveals their light is so bright, it kind of shines on the shadowy places in my life. And I don't necessarily want to change those places in my life and my habits. I feel judged just by their goodness. I feel bad. And so I just kind of want to put their light out. I just kind of want to like not go out to dinner with these people. Am I the only one who has friends like this? Maybe there are other places in your life where you feel this way. 
But this is what Daniel is so good. He's so pure. And his purity, it, it makes those around him just, it, it, they, they, they don't like him. They want to find a way to get rid of him. This jealousy sort of rises up in, inside of them. And, uh, and so they try to find a way to accuse him. But they can't find any grounds because he's neither corrupt nor negligent. <clears throat> so then we go on, it says, verse 5, So finally these men, they say to each other, We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Because they know where Daniel's ultimate allegiance lies. We've been talking about, a lot about allegiance in this series. Where is our ultimate allegiance? And they know if there is a law passed, a law of the land of Babylon that somehow sets him at odds with the law of his God, with his faith, he's going to choose allegiance to God over allegiance to the law. Does it make sense? They know that. There's no question about that. They know this is the, this is the secret. This is his, his, his weak spot, is his faithfulness, his absolute unwavering faithfulness to God. Verse 6, now the administrators and the satraps, they went to the, as a group to the king, and they said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human during the next 30 days except you, your majesty, except you shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue this decree, put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put a decree in writing. Let's just stop right there for a second. King Darius is in the place of ultimate power. He is a picture of our secular culture. That self is king. Self is not only king, but God. And wants to be worshipped. And so Darius is like, his, his um, vanity, his ego is his vulnerability. These people, they come to him and they say, oh, Darius, like, you're so great. Like, everybody should just pray to you, should worship you. Let's put you at the center of everybody's religious experience. You are the center of the world and we'll worship you. And he is so short-sighted. And he's, his ego is so inflated in this that he can't even see the outcome of this. That saying yes to issuing this sort of executive order is going to put him at odds with the only person in his kingdom who's capable of leading. Daniel. Right? Like this, Darius like is, is pictured, as all these other kings in the book of Daniel are, as, as like dim-witted. Like kind of foolish that their egos just sort of get inflated and they get away from them and they don't make good decisions. And this is a picture of human nature. It's a picture of saying that there is no human being who is designed or who's capable or who's able to sit on the throne of their lives or of the world. Because we're all flawed. We're all vulnerable human beings. So King Darius, this is what he does. His, his ego is inflated and so he makes this decree. Now verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that this decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Now these men went as a group and they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about the royal decree. Now king, by the way, did you remember king? Did you not have this memory of you 
saying something, kind of issuing a decree uh, uh, that over the next 30 days, nobody should pray to any god or human except you, your majesty. And if they did, they would be thrown into the lion's den. Did, did you say something like that? The king answered, yes, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, well, uh, so Daniel... You know, one of those exiles that was brought from Judah, this outsider, he pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. And he was determined to rescue Daniel, and he made every effort until sundown to save him. But he couldn't. But he couldn't. Again, do you see Darius' like ineptness as a leader? That, that he doesn't even have the power to rescue this man that he now wants to rescue, this man who is who's disobeyed his decree and is now his life is going to be in jeopardy. This is a picture of our secular age. This is, this is a, a word for us today that says in a world that says we are like God, we are on the throne, we should be the ones who are worshipped. It's, it's a way of just prophetically calling out to that to say we, we are not capable of doing that. We do not have what it takes to be able to do that. And Daniel, the, the story goes on, Daniel, um, he just stands firm in the face of this, this edict that has spelled out his death. He continues to pray as he has always done before. And Darius comes to him and Darius says, Daniel, may this, may this God who you worship, who you consistently, constantly worship, may he save you, may he rescue you, because I can't. And so they put Daniel into the lion's den. They roll the stone in front of it. And he goes down into the den of death. And it's sealed so that nobody can come and rescue him. Darius goes home and he spends that whole night. He says there's no entertainment. He, he doesn't eat. He fasts from Netflix that night. Um, because he's so distraught by, by what's happening to Daniel. And the first light, first thing in the morning, Darius, he, he comes running out to the tomb. And he calls out in this voice. He says, Daniel! Was your God who you continually worship, was your God able to rescue you? And out of the silence, Daniel calls and says, yes, my God has rescued me. He sent an angel to close the mouth of the lions and he has rescued me. And the story ends with Darius issuing another decree that says like, so everybody, you, you can actually take a, take a look at it here at the end of chapter 6, verse 26. I issue a decree now that every part of my kingdom, the people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is a living God and he endures forever and his kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves and he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth and he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered through the reign of Darius and the reign of King Cyrus the Persian. This is a story. This is a story of the failure of human beings to, to be king of our own lives, to be king of the world, to be gods. And is a story of learning submission to say that there is only one who is capable, who is competent, who is able to be at the center of the world, and it is not us, and it is God. And Darius has to learn he has to learn that, that he, he has come to an end of his power. And it's something we have to learn. It's something our culture has to learn. And it is not a hard mes message. It's not a, a message of judgment. It is a message of freedom, of freedom to say we can stop trying to be God and we can actually surrender our lives to God. Our vulnerability is our vanity. And so we surrender our vanity to God. We, we surrender our own egos to God. 
This is, this is the story of Daniel 6. One of the reasons Daniel stuck out so much is because of this character that had been formed in him over these long years in Babylon. At this point, Daniel had probably been in Babylon about 70 years. He was an older man. I won't say he was an old man. He's an older man. And it says, like, when this, it, when this decree was issued, he went up to his room and he prayed, as he had done every day, three times a day. See, it wasn't when, like, the crisis happened, all of a sudden the decree is issued, it's like Daniel's like, oh man, I should start praying, I really need some help. He had this pattern of prayer, three times a day, like clockwork, I'm going I'm to pray. And what is prayer? Prayer is an acknowledgement that I am not in charge. That's what prayer is, isn't it? It's a surrender. It says, God, I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge of my own life. I'm not in charge of my body. I'm not in charge of my resources. God, I need help. I need vision from elsewhere. This is what prayer is. Prayer, it puts us in a place, the posture of prayer, right? like where we're on our knees. It's a prayer of submission to say, God, you are king and I am not. And this is what Daniel does three times a day. He surrenders himself to God. And it over the course of time, this long obedience in the same direction. This character has been formed in him so that when trial comes, he doesn't waver. See, the character development for, for us, it's, it works the exact same way. There's this call to this pattern of prayer, this pattern of surrendering ourselves to God, this pattern of just submission to God. And... and and when hard things come in our lives, if that has been our pattern, we will find the grace, the sort of fortitude of soul to be able to move into those places with confidence and peace. But the trouble comes when, when, when prayer isn't a pattern, when it isn't a habit, when we're so used to just immediate, I want somebody else to pray for me. I'm going to come to church and the pastor's going to pray for me. Eric prays and so he'll just, his, his prayer is going to cover me. We have a prayer team. Um, you know, they'll pray for me. I don't need to worry about praying. And then the trouble comes when all of a sudden crisis comes in our lives and our souls aren't formed in the way of God. And the peace is really hard to find. Uh, about a year ago, I was with a woman from our church who was at the end of her life, and she knew she was at the end of her life, and I knew she was at the end of her life, um, and she wasn't, she wasn't nervous, she wasn't concerned, she was just, she, she knew it. And uh, as we're talking, I was just kind of amazed at just her, her peace, her sense of just calm in the middle of this situation. Um, I, I remember looking, and her and her husband were there sitting on their recliners, and in between there was this, like, end table, this stand, and it had these two well-worn Bibles and these prayer books. And you realize, oh, like these are disciples of Jesus. These are, these are people who have been praying their whole lives. Like this pattern of prayer, of surrendering to God. So now in this moment, it's not something new. It's not something they're trying to drum up. It's actually this peace is so deeply rooted in them that God is giving them everything they need to take this next step. God, we ask that you would teach us the, the discipline of following you in this slow movement of, of discipleship, this slow movement of surrender to you in prayer. God, if, there is, um, if there's a place in our hearts where we have become God, where we have become king, and, and we realize, God, that we, we kind of like being on the throne, and we like to define what's right for us and what's wrong for us. 
God, we, um, we surrender to you. God, we, we want to move off the throne because we don't belong there. The chair is too big for us. The crown is too heavy for us. So, Jesus, we ask you to take that place and we, we, we kneel before you. We surrender to you, Jesus. We ask that you would teach us what it means, what true freedom is like. God, we ask that you would set us free from the burden of trying to run our own lives and trying to run the world. And Jesus, we ask that as we pray, as we surrender ourselves to you, as we sing, as we just declare our allegiance to you, God, that you would build faith in us, that you would build peace in us. God, that you would form us into people who, uh, who have something to offer this broken world who have wisdom that the world does not know and they haven't experienced. And God, who who have the answer to flourishing, God, because it's your design for this world. God, teach us what it means to be those kinds of people in the world who bring hope, who bring peace, who bring love, who bring joy everywhere we go. God, teach us how to do that in Jesus' name.